This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by our Editorial Director, Ted Olson. Hey, Morgan. I'm glad to be back here. It's always nice when Mark goes on trips so I can come down and quickly listen with you. I don't know. There's a verb there that I'm supposed to use. I don't know. Podcast with you. Podcast. A new verb, actually. And Mark is going on something of just an endless vacation the next couple weeks. He's also speaking at the Evangelical Press Association. Well, this week. That's right. And I mean, we can keep people updated about all his whereabouts the next couple of weeks. But I'm glad that you are down in the bunker with me today. All right. So, Ted, it's interesting that you're going to be on the show with us because we are actually doing something pretty unique for Quick to Listen. Some people may know this is the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's death this week. And so we are actually going to be having two guests on the show who we think can really give us a sense of what was going on in the evangelical movement at the time of MLK's death in 1968. So the first person that's going to be joining us is Carl Ellis. He's actually been on the show before, but why don't you just remind he has. everyone? He's been, on, he's been on both of our podcasts uh, before both this and The Calling. Um, but if you don't know who he is, you should. He is Professor of Theology and Culture at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And he also leads the school's African-American Leadership Initiative there. His CV, if you look at it, really reads like an issue of Christianity Today. He's worked with uh, Tom Skinner Associates, uh, Prison Fellowship, Francis Schaeffer's Labrie. He was there with Schaefer, Westminster Theological Seminary, the Center for Urban Theological Studies. He's served as a pastor at a number of significant churches. We're glad to have him back on the show and also... Um, we wanted to talk to him because he he lived through uh, a lot of a lot of this story. Absolutely. So we'll be spending the first part of our podcast chatting with Carl, and then in the second part of the podcast, we will be speaking to an expert on this particular time in history, and we'll give you his background and bio then. Right on, a historian of the era. All right. So let's get into what we're talking about today. This week, we are remembering the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated 50 years ago on April 4th, 1968. Among the many events scheduled for this week, the Gospel Coalition and the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission are holding a summit in Memphis on racial unity. But finding evangelicals willing to align with the civil rights movement during the 1950s and 1960s was much more difficult. Today on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss how the white evangelical church approached Martin Luther King Jr., and his movement. So before we get into our discussion, I'd like to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And we've been telling you the past couple of weeks that if you subscribe now, you will get a copy of our Billy Graham issue. And the person who put that Billy Graham issue was none other than our co-host Ted Olson. Ted, do you have a particular article you think people would find it interesting to read? Well, one that I thought uh, dovetails interestingly with our conversation today is uh, this piece uh, on Billy Graham and, and race called Level Ground at the Cross uh, by Ed Gilbreth, who uh, was a you know, former 
editor here, but also uh, did some really uh, interesting work uh, with Graham's, uh, you know, leading uh, black evangelist. And it's a it's a it's a nice it's a nice piece. It's a nice uh, look at Graham. Doesn't he, he makes clear Graham was not a uh, uh, crusader on on civil rights, but also uh, did take some uh, good moves. Definitely talked about uh, the need for. Uh, integration, took some stances against segregation, uh, and then also uh, just in the way in which Graham uh, operates, you know, that's a lot of the stuff that's been talked about since Graham has died, but one of the nice things that Graham looks at, or that uh, Gilbreth looks at in the piece, is uh, how Graham uh, worked in his own own ministry to integrate the ministry, to make sure that the ministry was not only reaching out to kind of, uh, uh, you know, white white Christians, and then what he was doing as well um, when he would go overseas to places like South Africa, talking about apartheid uh, and those kinds of things. So, And then also looking at just that this wasn't something that Graham left behind in the uh, civil rights era, that, that through the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, Graham continued uh, to speak about uh, race, racism, as as kind of core Christian social issues that they need to be talking about and being involved on. Okay, so if you would like to read that article, it's part of our Billy Graham issue, a special issue that we have that remembers his life, and you can get that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. When you subscribe, you will end up getting a copy of that issue. So again, orderct.com slash quick to listen. Dr. Ellis, can you give us a sense of your own involvement in the civil rights era? How old were you and how did you participate? Okay, well, I grew up, like I said, I, I, I grew up in the uh, in the north, born in New York City. You know, that's where, all, that's where my family is. And moved a couple of times, moved to Chicago, moved to Gary, Indiana. That's where I spent most of my childhood there. In the early days, uh, we kind of, we kind of saw the things that are going on in the South, but that's just the South. That's not the North, you know. And uh, But then we began to, I began to experience personally some things, uh, like you go to a go-kart track or something like that, and, you know, you want to ride the go-karts, and all of a sudden they say, you have to be a member. Where's your membership card? That was the way they did it up in the North. They would say, and they would have a sign in the back saying, members only, pretending that that, that it was a club. In the meantime, they would advertise on the street to the general public, you know. So that was a, that was one of my first experiences. The other one was when the, uh, I know my, my family, we shopped at Kroger, Kroger grocery store all the time. And all of a sudden, one day we came and there were pickets out in front. And basically the signs were, you know, why do you shop where you can't work? You know, and uh, they would never, ever hire any African-Americans or anybody else but whites. And so that was the first thing, and we began to participate in the boycott. And I remember going to, uh, it, was a, it was a fair share organization of Gary that was uh, putting this thing on, and they were taken to court by Kroger. And, of course, I went down state Indiana, you know, followed the court case and all that, and eventually they won, uh, you know, the, the fair share organization. And then about that time, uh, I began to hear about uh, the things that are going down in uh, Montgomery. And uh, one day, this was back in 59, 58, actually. Uh, it's funny, I, I, you know, I had become a Catholic by that time, okay? So, you know, and there's a whole reason why I became a Catholic. But anyway, here I was, a Catholic. And I couldn't understand why this up-and-coming young leader, this dynamo, this great force in the country, why his name was Martin Luther King. I mean, you know, because in Catholic school, he taught us that Martin Luther was, was akin to the devil himself, you know? So, I couldn't figure it out. So he, he came to Gary, he was supposed to speak, and there was some problem with the weather, and the plane couldn't land and everything, so they had to postpone it for a year. 
And so he came back in 59 and he did speak. And it's interesting. I met, I met him. As a matter of fact, uh, his, his first book had just come out. So if he had come the year before, I wouldn't have gotten the book. But his first book, Stride Towards Freedom, had just come out. So I asked my father, I said, hey, you know, I'd like to get this book. Now, I wasn't much of a reader then, but, but he bought me the book, this expensive, hardcover edition of his first book. I mean, it was really, really, my father had to really make some sacrifices to get me this book. Two ninety five dollars for the hardcover edition. <laughs> nice. So, and so I took it up to Dr. King and he signed it for me. I still have the book to this day. Ah. So then I, you know, I began to, uh, and I heard what he had to say and I began to realize that, you know, what goes on up north is connected to what goes on down south. And so slowly, slowly but surely, I became more and more involved in the civil rights causes. We had several, several cases in Gary where things would happen. And then, uh, now my father was uh, an original Tuskegee Airman, okay? So I grew up knowing, uh, you know, the raw deal that the Tuskegee Airmen got. Those those who wanted to be airline pilots. My dad wanted to be an airline pilot, and he was told in no uncertain terms, "Don't even apply." You know, and here here these guys were racked up this incredible uh, record, and they could not even uh, fly for airlines. And uh, so he ended up being an optometrist instead. But the thing was, I grew up knowing his disappointment. He grew up in Chicago, but he spent some time in Tuskegee, and he told me about how, how things were. As a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, <laughs> he t- you know, back in those days, what, what some of the airmen would do as a part of their protest, they'd go to Montgomery and get on the bus and steal the signs that said colored. You know, <laughs> They would just steal those signs. That was their protest, you know. So anyway, um, to my consciousness continue to develop and develop, understanding the effects of Jim Crow. Now, of course, we, we come up to, to, to 1963 when everything got really hot, you know what I'm saying? And uh, uh, that was really the peak of the civil rights uh, uh, time. Now, it was later on, like in 65 or 64, I, that's when I actually participated in marches like at the Chicago campaign. I had just become a Christian by that time. And it's interesting that uh, here I was, very active. I was very active in civil rights activities where I was. And then when I became a Christian, somehow I got the message that it was a sin to be in, to be concerned about things like civil rights. You know, I, I became an evangelical, okay? And, uh, and somehow the evangelical ethos communicated to me that that's not important. You know, the whole mentality is that the world is the Titanic. Why bother to rearrange the furniture or polish the brass? Uh, we just got to get everybody on the lifeboat, and then we'll let the millennium take care of all of that. You know, so I was, you know, of that mentality, and so I began to withdraw from all activity in the civil rights movement. Well, the thing was though that I had a passion for flying. You know, my father uh, taught me how to fly when I was about twelve, eleven, or twelve. I was flying airplanes before I could drive. So one day he's at the office. He calls me up. He says, "Hey, listen, uh, we got to do some. I, you know, we got to do some flying. I need a co-pilot. Would you come with me?" I said, "Sure." So I met him at the uh, the airport, and uh, on our way out, I said, "Hey, w- what are we doing?" He said, "We're we're dropping leaflets." I said, "Well, leaflets about what?" He said, "For the Gary Freedom Movement." And I thought, "Oh my goodness, you know, uh, oh, you know." So I I, I pled the blood. I said, "Oh God, please forgive me for what I'm about to do." <laughs> 
You know? Did God forgive you? <laughs> and I said, but, well, 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 here's the thing, you know, the Bible said, honor my father and my mother, right? So I said, I'm going to honor my father in this, because it doesn't make any difference who drops the leaflets, they're going to be dropped anyway, you know? And then I realized, <laughs> must have been about 15 minutes later, you know, it's just like an epiphany moment. So what the heck am I feeling guilty about? This is injustice, and the Bible speaks against injustice. What was happening was that the Gary Chamber of Commerce began to pressure the city council. The city council was going to pass an ordinance, an open housing ordinance, and the Chamber of Commerce pressured the city council to reject it. And Gary had a population of 60% African-American, you know, and not 80% of the people who, who supported the downtown stores were African-Americans. So we said, well, all right, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to block justice, then we will boycott the stores. And that's what the leaflets are all about. So we dropped the leaflets. Hey, that worked out pretty good, too. And uh, so that was my reintroduction to the whole civil rights thing. I, I realized that I'd been sold a bill of goods, you know, that uh, the civil rights um, concerns were definitely uh, within the scope of uh, what, what the Bible tells us to. I mean, you know, it's like injustice is the issue here. And so then I, I, re- I rekindled my activity and, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, so did that conversation, uh, I know you, you started a lot of your work working with uh, Tom, Tom Skinner. Right. I, I know that he had some similarities in his story. And I have read that King's assassination affected him and his ministry, uh, you know, quite, quite a fair bit uh, and really cranked up a lot of his um, speaking on on civil rights and 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 yeah, also evangelical yeah. uh, uh, ra- racism. Right. Were you working with him at, at at that at that stage? No, no, not at that time. Not not at that time. I didn't even hear of Tom Skinner until '66, and it was a, a man named John, uh, Clark Pinnock who I I had met uh, that who had just he had just come back from Switzerland studying under Dr. Schaefer, and I met him and he introduced me to Tom Skinner and he he, he introduced me to Schaefer. <laughs> And so it's funny, I ended up working with Tom, and I ended up going to uh, study under Schaefer. But uh, yeah, I didn't know Tom then, but I did read some things like in uh, in 66, 67, uh, I read something, uh, this is soon after Clark had introduced me to him, you know, n- not personally, but he sent me some things written about him. And of course, I was still in my hard evangelical days, and and I remember Tom making statements like uh, Martin Luther King, is, he's in error because he's trying to get non-Christians to act Christian, you know, the non-violent, you know, and he, he had some of the same criticisms that I did, you know, but, but then I'm sure Tom, seeing the situation for what it was, you know, the fact that generally speaking, the evangelical community went along with the cultural sin of racism, that the church didn't look any different from the society, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, when the church really should look different from the society, you know. <laughs> and I think Tom probably went through some of the same realizations that I did, that there's something horribly wrong. And of course, since then, I've seen what it is. You know, it's like theology, uh, you know, we t- we say we're orthodox, right? But we're orthodox in terms of our doctrine, but we're not orthodox in terms of our ethics. And um, I began to see that 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 very same thing. And I didn't, I, I didn't articulate it that way, but I just knew something was off, something was amiss. I, you know, I, I never, I have never ever given up my belief in the Bible being the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. But I began to realize that that evangelical theology, as much as it helped me in my early days, uh, there was some, uh, you know, uh, there were some fundamental flaws with it. 
And that was a hard pill for me to swallow. I'm just curious, you know, you, you talked about moving from Catholicism to evangelicalism. Okay. The reason I became a Catholic, it has something to do with ethics, okay? When I was uh, 10 years old, my mom and I were in Chicago. She had a medical emergency that almost took her life. I mean, she came within about 10 minutes of dying. And in those days, this is 1956, and in those days, if, if you get rushed to the nearest hospital to have a medical emergency, there was a chance that the hospital would not serve black people, and they would just let you die. I mean, I know of cases like that. They say, well, we don't serve you, you, you people, and this, that's, that's just too bad. And so, um, they, you know, we, you know we, we rushed her to the nearest hospital. It happened to be a Catholic hospital. And not only did they save her life, but they treated her like she was royalty. And then my mom said it herself. She said, there must be something about these Catholics, you know. So she began to look into it. And then a few months later, uh, we were in New York. We kind of got stranded in New York for a few months. And, and she was trying to get me in school while I was there. None of the public schools would take me, but a Catholic school took me. And the education I got there was better than I, I'd ever seen in the public school. So those two reasons why... I became a Catholic. I was a pretty good Catholic, too, although I hated religion altogether. So I stayed Catholic for about four years and uh, got disillusioned with that. And then I came back to the Protestant church and then just got disillusioned with Christianity altogether. So it was all in that, in that same time I was getting more and more involved in civil rights. So you can see, and again, when I, when I saw Dr. King, I, I used to think, well, you know, I thought Christianity was bankrupt. But I saw what Dr. King was doing. I says, well, okay, um, if that's what Christianity is about, well, then maybe it isn't bankrupt. Maybe it, it is okay. That's kind of how that happened. It wasn't a direct uh, journey from Catholicism to civil rights involvement. And, of course, I became a Christian then uh, when I was about 17. And that, that whole, like I said, that, that, that unspoken evangelical thing came upon me. You should not be concerned about civil rights, you know. That's that's what it was. I mean, I, I never read any explicit stuff about that, but the sense that I got, you know, it was part of the whole ethos of what it meant to be an evangelical back then. That's an interesting story because your the emphasis on on the ethics is that's a helpful that's a helpful corrective to the narrative that you usually get, which was, uh, you know, white evangelicals uh, largely looked at the civil rights movement and said, well, you know, that's that's political or social. We don't really get involved in that. Yeah, yeah. And and also exactly. in the and and even now in in you know 2018, looking back, uh, you know, there's this idea that like, oh, evangelicals were concerned about you know individual sins, but not collective sin and not systemic sin. That's what it was. That's, what, that's yeah. right. But it's also important mm -hmm. to hear your your story of like, no, but also the individual sins that people did and the individual racist unethical behavior also. It wasn't just a structural evil issue. There was it wasn't just sin. It was also it was personal sins. too. Yeah, it was personal that's right. sin. And that's I think right. that's that's a conversation that I think sometimes gets lost uh, when we when we look back on that era and look at the difference. I know. Yeah, it's not just systemic. It is systemic, but it's not just that. It is personal, but it's not just that. Right. I think um, I expressed that pretty well in a in a forward I did to a book called Heal Us Emmanuel. I started off talking about uh, two sisters. We would call them the Hill Sisters. And the thing was, you know, I went to an all-black school, right? An all-black high school. But I would hear my friends talk about the Hill Sisters every now and then. And they and the one thing that's, that stood out about the Hill Sisters is that they were not prejudiced, quote-unquote. And I just couldn't believe that there are any white folks like that, you know. They said, these, these, these girls are not prejudiced. They are not prejudiced. So 
I just kind of put it in the back of my mind. So once I had become a Christian, uh, a few months later, I met the Hill Sisters, and I found out the secret behind their not being prejudiced is that they were Christians. And so right then and there, I mean, you know, God had really done a number on my heart because I was kind of angry, and God took all that out. And then I met the Hill Sisters, and I found that they had the, you know, it was like we were we were sisters, you know, sisters and brothers, you know, a real eye opener. So that was it, and I, I really believed, you know, I said, well, the gospel is the answer to all of this racism and prejudice, which, by the way, which I still believe, which I still believe. But the thing that I've come to realize is that the gospel that we preach, the gospel of American evangelicalism, is a truncated, limited, watered-down version of the gospel that you find in the Bible. So when I talk about the gospel, I'm talking about the gospel in the Bible. So it was a real disappointment to me when it really puzzled me when I when I ran into hardcore racism on the part of so-called Bible-believing evangelicals. I remember my the, the most vivid experience I had of that was uh, being turned away and blocked from entering into a, a church in uh, Hampton, Virginia. Wow. That had this reputation of being, you know, I, I asked all around, I said, what's a good Bible-believing church to go to? I didn't care if it was black, white, grizzly, or gray. I didn't care. I just wanted to go to a good Bible-believing church. And for three years, I asked that question, and everybody kept telling me this one church. And then I went to that church and was blocked. And it was such an ugly incident that I actually feared for my life. Wow. I, I really thought that those guys were going to lynch me. And uh, here this church was, had all this reputation of being Bible-believing and Bible-teaching. And it affected, me, it affected me so deeply that for about six months, I became basically a, an agnostic, you know, and I just couldn't. And I just you know, I said, well, God, you know, if this this is supposed to be your gospel. I know what you've done for me, and, you know, why don't you do this for other people? Is it that uh, maybe this isn't what we think it is? You know, it took some, some, some months for me to kind of work that out. When you're talking about becoming an evangelical, do you mean the church that you went to or the other Christian organizations that you were a part of? No, it was the Christian organizations. It was, the guys who led me to Christ were evangelicals, but they were mavericks. They were, they were not part of a church. Because you remember now in the black community, our choices back in the 60s in the black community were either a highly emotional, non-cognitive uh, kind of a church, or you had those that were cognitive, but they were cold and dead and all that. And there was very little in between. And so these guys who led me to Christ were orphaned by that, by both of those. Uh, and yet they had become Christians, and uh, they weren't church-oriented. Or See, I wasn't church-oriented either, and so they spoke my language. That's how I heard the gospel. So so I became evangelical by reading and by involvement in university and uh, Youth for Christ and things like that. By the way, Youth for Christ had no chapters or anything like that in the black community, but there were some people that the Hills Sisters, there's a church that the Hills went to, that I started going there for their youth uh, group. It was Presbyterian Church, and they had Youth for Christ and all that. Yeah. So that's how I came came into contact with all of that. So I was not I was not really officially the mem- a member of an evangelical church or an evangelical denomination, but I was involved in ministries that were evangelical, and I did a lot of reading, you know, of evangelical books. That's how I was an evangelical, and I realized that though today, I mean. Theologically, I mean, I, you know, in terms of doctrine, I line up with evangelicals pretty well, you know, but culturally, I am not. 
socially I am not, you know, so I make that distinction. And then politically, well, what the heck? I mean, I'm, I'm not Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. <laughs> I don't, you know, neither, neither of that, none of those uh, is, uh, uh, I, I don't have enough agreement with any of them to really be called one. So, so I get, I get hate mail from, from liberals and conservatives and all that. So, okay. So be it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us where were you and what do you remember about MLK's death? All right. Where was I? I was at Hampton. I went to Hampton University. It was at night and I was up in Harkness Hall. I lived in the 204 Harkness Hall, if I remember right. And I heard some guys talking out and I heard some anger and all that. I came out and asked what was going on and they told me that uh, he had been shot. And then within a minute or two, I found out that he he was dead. That's where I was that night, April 4th. Now, now here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. And I'll just be frank about this. Having lived through the whole civil rights era, you know, at the time, Dr. King was the creme de la creme. I mean, you know, he was he was it. You know, he was the guy. And uh, everybody looked to him as for leadership and guidance and all that. But by the time we got to 68, what had happened, the Black Consciousness Movement had started, and a lot of people... Uh, Begin to, you know, say, well, that nonviolent stuff, well, that's, you know, that's so, that's not really all that great. And, and Dr. King began to, he was in serious decline in terms of his popularity uh, among African Americans. Not that people rejected him, it was just that people were thinking, okay, well, that, that's okay. That was okay for early 60s. But now this is late 60s, you've got to do something else. And his death, all of a sudden, it put him back on top. You know what I'm saying? Everybody was angry about that, you know, because because it was back then when he was trying to do this um, poor people's march, and people weren't regarding him all that much. Um, but then that happened, and then uh, his death happened, and everybody really got angry. Now, of course, you know there are some who use that for an excuse to do other things, but but there was a genuine upsetness on everybody, and everybody thought, well, you know. He may he may have lost favor, but he was still ours. He was still our one of our leaders, and it was just a, a shame that uh, that that happened. And there was a lot of anger there. I remember on campus. Oh boy, there was a lot of anger. And uh, as a matter of fact, they they closed, they shut the school down early that year. Did you go to an HBCU? Yes, Hampton University. I was yeah. just going to say because I know at some other universities people cheered. Well, you know what? It's interesting. The night after the assassination. I went to a, um, a, a, a national convention of the Full Gospel Christian Business Fellowship International. Okay, it was in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'll never forget this. And our faculty advisor had taken me, you know, I was in the university group there at Hampton. And so my faculty, our faculty advisor invited me to go. He invited me to go several days earlier. So I kept up the commitment and I went. And it was amazing uh, at that uh, meeting, this big meeting, I mean, there was happiness, and people were just clapping and cheering and all. I mean, it, I, I had never—now, I'm not saying that they were thinking of Dr. King per se, but there was such a festive mood, you can kind of tell them. I'm thinking, how, how are these people acting like this when we've had a national tragedy? Nobody has—you know, I just couldn't figure that out. And there was this praising the Lord and singing and clapping, joy, 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 down in my heart. And all that, and it, it just mystified me totally. Well, anyway, so yes, I, I saw a little bit of that. You know, I'm not going to say that these folks were focused on Dr. King, but I'm sure I'm sure that it could it the happy the relief that he was dead contributed to the festive mood. 
how did King's death impact your own ministry and your faith? At that time, I was still, even though I was participating in civil rights marches and things like that, I had not come to come to grips with him in terms of a theological perspective, okay? Uh, one of my criticisms of him was that he was not an evangelical. you got to understand, you know, being a good evangelical, I believed that the sign or the indication that God is active anywhere is the presence of evangelicalism, all right? Now, so with, with that in mind, and I was really struggling with this. I was really wrestling with God. I was kind of angry because I saw I did I, I never saw evangelicalism in my community. Okay, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking, well, God, what's up with this? You know, are you a racist or not? I'm, you know, that kind of thing. And so, but I was angry because I was trying to get evangelicals to get off their duff and come to the black community and do something. You know. I wanted to do something. I mean, a bunch of us were ready to do something, but there didn't seem to be any concern. So with, with that in mind, I'm, 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 I'm criticizing Dr. King for not being an evangelical, for not going to an evangelical seminary. And then I stumbled across some information that he wanted to go to a couple of evangelical seminaries, and they told him not even to apply because they didn't accept African-Americans. So here I am criticizing this man. <laughs> for doing something because he was discriminated against. And that I think that for me that was a final straw in making me realize that, that the evangelical, theological, social, whatever outlook was fundamentally flawed. And I said, you know, the only thing I can really rely on is the Bible here. And so I began to read the Bible independent of an evangelical mentality. I said, whatever the Bible says, I'm gonna believe it. You know, and that that for me that revolutionized my whole theological outlook. So yeah, that was, that was, um, I was among those who said that, uh, no, he wasn't orthodox and all that. But again, when I think about theology, the doctrinal side versus the ethical side, okay, yeah, he may not have been orthodox in terms of the way he structured his theological syllogisms and his doctrine and all that. But in terms of social ethics, he was on the money. And I, I have to, I, ha- I have to recognize that the origin of, of, of that was not flesh and blood. Okay, I have to I have to recognize that that he touched on something that the church should have been touching on all along. And uh, you know how God sometimes will, will raise up. Well, you know, He raised up Nebuchadnezzar to say things that Israel would never say. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar reached the whole world with with, with the gospel in, in in Daniel chapter four. You know what I'm saying? Israel never would have done anything like that. <laughs> so, uh, so that's kind of interesting how God works. And uh, by that time, when I was beginning to realize how God is sovereign over all this stuff. So, whatever we may say about Dr. King, the fact is that God used him in a mighty way, and uh, and I thank God for him. I leave all you know how how you know, how you know he's going to be judged. I, I leave all that up to God. I'm not going to get into a whole lot of rigmarole about that. <laughs> but the Bible is full of people who were a piece of work. There's a lot of them. And and history is full of people who are who were pieces of work, like myself. You know, I'm definitely a piece of work. And yet, so God saved me. <laughs> right on. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You got it. You've been listening to Quick to Listen's discussion with Dr. Carl Ellis. And now we will be doing another interview with Michael Hammond. Ed, who is Michael Hammond? Uh, Michael Hammond. He's dean of the School of Humanities, Arts, and Biblical Studies at Taylor University. 
He's also a professor of U.S. history, uh, whose work has had a special focus on evangelicals and the civil rights movement and on the rise of the religious right in the 1970s. He is co-editor of one of my favorite blogs, Religion in American History, and he also writes a lot on baseball. Uh, so, you know, you guys can have that in common, Morgan. But uh, yeah, really glad to have him on, on, the, uh, on the program. We were just together a couple weeks ago at the what they, what they called the Knoll Conference, the uh, a conference at Notre Dame uh, honoring the work of Mark Knoll, uh, historian. A former quick-to-listen guest. Yeah, right on, of course, yeah. So how's it going? How's everything in Indiana? We are in the middle of a monsoon, believe it or not. Uh, but you probably have that up in your area, too. No. Um, <laughs> we have the cold, but not the snow. You guys are getting hit yeah. with all the snow that's missing us. Well, and now it's it's rain. It looks like a, a hurricane outside. So it's it's crazy times. Um, but it's a pleasure to be with you, Ted and Morgan. And uh, I'm excited to talk about this on, on this anniversary uh, as we think of 50 years since the passing of Dr. King. All right. Well, Michael, we are excited to talk to you today and ask you all of our questions about this particular time in evangelical history. And so let's just start by going there right now um, and getting a sense of the place and era. So, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, what causes would you say that evangelicalism was about? Or in other words, what did they frequently speak out in favor of or against? You know, the movement really had its roots. In the World War II era, uh, the National Association of Evangelicals is formed in 1942, just a few months after Pearl Harbor. And that timing is interesting because this is a moment when fundamentalist Christians, you know, most of these evangelical uh, reformers, if you will, were fundamentalists who decided that their faith was sort of kept under a bushel and they needed to have some type of a response to a world that was suffering from, at that point, real evil. They could see real evil in the world in the, the form of totalitarianism and Nazi oppression. But by the 1950s, a decade or so into that, uh, you've got a, a movement that is now aligned in the midst of the Cold War. And, and the Cold War really fed into the early years of evangelicalism. I mean, the, the first coalitions that were built as, as neo-evangelicals or the new evangelicals were organizing were coalitions so that they could protect their broadcast rights, for instance. And, and they, were, they were organizing against the Federal Council of Churches, the World Council of Churches, these, these more social gospel and, and higher critic uh, designed religious movements that, that they, they couldn't abide by because they, they didn't have a high view of scripture. But on the other hand, they were coming away from fundamentalism, which seemed to be more reclusive and, and, and withdrawing from the culture. So that's a that's a really tricky tightrope that they're walking there because in, on the one hand, if you emphasize scripture, you, you start to get into um, intramural debates over the meaning of scripture, and those can be really contentious fights. Uh, and we see that happen as evangelicalism continues to to sort of churn against fundamentalism. But on the other side of it, to think about what scripture then means in, in response to social ills and response to social needs takes a very thoughtful and nuanced approach as well. So they did this thinking of education, thinking of pastors and churches, thinking of, of, of articulating a very clear social ethic for how they would do this in society. And in the midst of that, the civil rights movement comes in what I see as the first real challenge, the first real puzzle that they don't know how to solve. I've been reading through some old Christianity Today articles from the time of King's death, uh, and also 
some of those early issues of CT. And then also after Graham's death, I went over to the uh, Billy Graham uh, archives, which I, I know that you also went through uh, in some of your studies. Uh, it's interesting. The first piece that I uh, saw, I saw this uh, letter uh, written from Carl Henry to Billy Graham. And it's a letter in which Henry uh, says, hey, uh, I, I recently saw some comments you made about uh, segregation. I'm really glad that you are uh, speaking out on this. I'm also uh, passionate about this and think that we, as we create Christianity today, this is in, in like 1955, he's writing this, that, you know, that we, we should make this uh, kind of one of our key key pressure areas. And then as you look uh, in, in kind of the, some of the first issues, 1956, they do talk about uh, segregation a fair bit, um, but it is, uh, it is not with the kind of passion that you see in that letter from Carl Henry. In fact, you see, uh, you know, there's a piece in one of the first issues of CT kind of defending, it's not so much uh, pro-segregation so much as it is uh, kind of anti-anti-segregation. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. I'm wondering how much was uh, anti-communism in the background? Like, what what is some of the what are the arguments against some of the civil rights movement? I I, I sense some of that is an anti-communist, like a, a concern that there's some people who are tying the civil rights movement to uh, a more socialist uh, approach. And I, I also get the sense for some folks, it was maybe less about communism and more about kind of the supposed rule of law. You see that in a number of letters to Christianity Today in the time, where they're opposing even nonviolent forms of protest, just protest in general is somehow against, uh, you know, this uh, Roman's obligation to to uh, obey whatever the, the law of the land is at any given time. I, what's, I mean, what, you've, you've done more research in, into this than I have. What, what are some of the, the stated arguments against uh, the civil rights movement? Well, I think you've set this pretty well with Carl Henry and Billy Graham. Uh, you know, Carl Henry, as I told the story coming out of the 40s, Carl Henry was really the articulate spokesperson he was the per- he was going around to different colleges and different parts of the country in the in the post-war years giving lectures that then became the 1947 collection the uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism and if you read that book the lectures that he transcribes then he's talking about social sin he's talking about fundamentalism is only about individualized sin and yet a, a Christianity that doesn't recognize the great issues of the day. And he mentions race, and he says the, the race issues that we have to confront, it, it's a faith that doesn't have its, what we might say, saltiness, or doesn't have its relevance to the world. And so in the early 50s, even, um, Billy Graham, famously in 1953 in Chattanooga, he takes down a, a rope that segregates black crowds from white crowds. And, and this is often seen as a turning point for Graham. But even prior to that, in 1951, uh, he speaks at, at a Los Angeles rally and then again at Rice University. 
speaks to uh, to to black young people, and he says, "You, we we support your cause, but be sure that you're not infiltrated by the communists. You know, go ahead and do this." But he even says in in Houston uh, to to the Rice crowd, "There's an international gang of bandits out there that you have to avoid as you do this." And this is really the tension that you see through the 50s, and it's in those those early years of Christianity Today, which starts publishing in October of 56. Henry did foresee, or he did hope, that their first issues would be—he uh, had a plan for the first or second or third issue sometime in the first year to be a whole forum on, on race issues. But, but there's a real challenge because communism was such an ominous threat, and you can see the tension here. Do we, do we worry about this massive international conspiracy— that would undo everything about American democracy, or do we worry about this descent back home? And there's not a real clarity on this, and, and part of it has to do with the, the editorial board of CP, of Christianity Today. It's also helpful to put this in, in context in the timeline. So when we talk about October of 1956, you know, Rosa Parks is arrested on December 1st, 1955, and that sets off a year-long bus boycott in Montgomery, and it's not just the bus boycott, but it's also the work that's going on in the court system, the federal courts, the appeals court. And ultimately, in November of 1956, the Supreme Court issues a ruling that bans segregation on public transportation. That's the success of the Montgomery bus boycott in, in terms of legal success. So that's a month after CT gets, gets published. So Christianity Today is, is imagined, if you think of the ramp up in 1955, 1956, these are issues that are at the forefront of American news. It's, it's at the forefront of what people are paying attention to in the day of the evening newscast, you know, the 15-minute or 30-minute newscast where you get your information for the day. I, I want to jump ahead. We'll probably come back, back to this period as well. But does anything change uh, after King's uh, assassination among uh, white evangelicals uh, in regards to their attitude toward relationships between blacks and whites and also uh, civil rights? There's some things that have started to change. If you're talking about you know, 50 years ago in 1968, there's already some changes that have been in motion. Some of this happens after the, the 64 Civil Rights Act is passed and the 65 Voting Rights Act. And then, of course, in 68, as sort of the, uh, the, the memorial to King, uh, the Congress does pass a fair housing bill in the, the months immediately after the assassination. Now, that sounds like a pretty rosy way to, to tell the story, but the reality is the passage of those bills by Congress, it did send a signal to many people across the country that, that there was change afoot, but there were still deep pockets of resistance and still deep pockets of segregation. And even though we think of this as the death of Jim Crow era, there are remnants of Jim Crow, and you know, we even still, today we can still point back to, to that era and say there's still some, some uh, remnant of that left over today. So I don't know that the death of King, in, in my reading, I don't see the death of King as this massive turning point where all of a sudden people come to conscience and say, okay, we've misjudged this or we've, we've, we've you know, stood on the sidelines too long. And keep in mind that by the time King is assassinated, you know, in 67, he comes out against the Vietnam War. And that, that positions him in a, in a place where most evangelicals were not going to be comfortable. And to be fair, most white Americans were not going to be comfortable. I mean, to be part of the anti-war movement, to be not just uh, practicing civil disobedience, which even in the 50s, uh, civil disobedience was not something that was that common. 
by the 60s, it's more common. You have people, you have draft riots, you have people getting arrested for different rights revolutions and, and student protests and sit-ins. But in the 50s, when King starts the sit-ins, when there's sit-ins at the lunch counters in Greensboro in the early 60s in Nashville, these are, these are really unique moments of civil disobedience that, that Americans are not really comfortable with. So you mentioned the law and order perspective. And there was that theological perspective that said, you know, you can speak up, but don't disobey the authority. And if a police officer tells you to stand up and move, then you're supposed to do that. And I think most uh, white evangelicals at that point in history, that's where they would align along with the, the broader culture. Yeah, I think it's very telling. Uh, I was just looking at you know, this uh, issue of CT that came out uh, after King's assassination. And, and the, the title on the editorial is Johnson, King, and Ho Chi Minh, very much in the context of the Vietnam War. It's very much framed as, uh, you know, there's a lot in here about criticizing what the editorial writer uh, describes as kind of overreaction uh, to King's death. I mean, there's some, you know, there's some, there's some good stuff in this editorial, too, uh, about how this indicates the, the need to uh, address racial injustice in a much more uh, focused way. But that's not the majority of the editorial. The majority of the editorial is talking about uh, Vietnam, is talking about the, the, uh, the rule of law, um, and, and a number of other things. Uh, I have read that for a number of black evangelicals, uh, people like uh, Tom Skinner, that, that there was a bit uh, more of a turning point here where King's death did take folks who were largely partners with white evangelicals in a lot of areas and made them a little bit more focused on on racial justice issues, a little bit more in a prophetic mode, speaking out on on uh, racial injustice. Was there a- any greater tension between white and black evangelicals in the wake of uh, kind of the the late the late sixties here? Well, I think by the time you get to the nineteen seventies, you do see a different involvement, and Skinner is obviously a, a big part of that, but. But really, when you think about black evangelical leaders of the 1970s, there, there aren't a whole lot of names that come to mind. And this gets to the, the sort of challenge that we still are wrestling through today in terms of evangelical identity. But you know, some scholars have pointed out that even though uh, most black churches, you know, and, and not to think of a monolithic black church, but you know, different congregations, different denominations, whether it's Kojic or the AME, you know, most of these churches would meet the criteria for what we think of as evangelical in terms of their doctrine and practice. They, they believe in the authority of Scripture, they believe in real sin and real salvation, and they, they definitely believe in being active in society and responding to needs. But they, they didn't have the same sort of legacy that, uh, that the organizers, the, the new evangelical organizers of the 40s and 50s did. So they, they weren't reacting against fundamentalism, and they weren't reacting against the social gospel. They had a different story. They had a story, obviously, roots in slavery, not in the colonies, uh, in, in terms of governing the colonies. And so the whole idea that, you know, it makes sense if you think about it, the people that cling to this idea of evangelicalism and, and form all the different organizations around it and use that term in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and tie themselves to Billy Graham, I mean, they, it makes sense that they are reacting against fundamentalism on their right and the social gospel on their left. But for, for most African-Americans, that wasn't their story. They hadn't been part of those pockets. And so evangelical wasn't a term that motivated them. And to this day, I think we still see that. It's not to say there aren't black evangelicals and not to say that, that different churches don't meet the criteria. They certainly do. 
But in terms of the hangups that, that a lot of us have seen in the last couple of years and even longer, you know, wrestling publicly, whether they people want to be called evangelical or not, you don't see a whole lot of African-American pastors who are struggling with that. They they kind of made their peace, and that hasn't been a real motivator. So so someone like Tom Skinner, or even going back further, someone like you know Ralph Bell, who was one of uh, the associate evangelists with Graham, um, you know, and other other um, African-American leaders who who jumped in and were part of the evangelical movement, they are pretty rare. I'm really curious, just to jump back a little bit further about the role that geography played in evangelical response to the civil rights movement. You know, obviously, Billy Graham is from North Carolina. Carl Henry's from New York slash New England. And so it's a a little bit easier maybe in some ways to see why Carl Henry might be willing to take something that feels like a a more quote-unquote radical approach here. But I'm, I'm curious about how people envision their constituents and what type of communities they decided to to keep in mind or felt beholden to when they were making these decisions. I don't necessarily, like right now, I think of evangelicals as being predominantly located in the South. Yeah, but but who were, who were these audiences? Who were they trying to not offend over racial views? You know, was there a reason why Christians who were not having their consciences, I guess, torn apart by following Jim Crow were included in this constituency? Um, as opposed to creating a constituency that was outside of that? Morgan, it's really good uh, to observe that, um, because especially if you if you study the civil rights movement, even aside from the evangelical question, uh, sectionalism still plays a pretty big role in, in terms of how this gets processed in the North and the South. And a misreading of this is to think that Jim Crow only existed in the South. That's not accurate. Uh, was it more predominant in the South? Were there more abuses of it of, of uh, black rights in the South? Certainly, but think about King's own story. You know, King said one of the the toughest challenges he ever faced. It, it wasn't in Atlanta. It wasn't in Montgomery. It wasn't in Birmingham. It was in Chicago. It's when he moved his family to Chicago in 1965 and tried to integrate housing, and they didn't last all that long because of the violence and the abuse that they suffered. But we also see this, uh, back to Christianity Today, if I can for a moment, part of the challenge for Carl Henry, who was a Northerner, it wasn't Graham as much, although Graham sort of caught in the middle. But the, the initial editorial staff of three, Carl Henry, Nelson Bell, and Marcellus Kick. Uh, Nelson Bell uh, was a, a retired surgeon who had who'd been a missionary in China, but more importantly, he was Billy Graham's father-in-law. He was a Southern gentleman. He was a leader in the Southern Presbyterian Church. But but Bell was uh, to go back to Ted's anti anti integration or anti anti segregation. Um, he was a, a sort of um, moderate segregationist, and and what that means, you know, by today's terms, it seems anachronistic to judge this one way or the other. But he was your classic Southern gentleman who said, "Look, we can have integration, but it just needs to happen naturally. We don't want the government to come down and force it. We don't want troops on the football field at Little Rock Central High. We don't want." you know, a second uh, reconstruction where federalism comes in and invades our Southern rights. And and so he, uh, if you read those editorials, like like you suggest from Christianity Today, through the, the 50s and into about the mid-60s, you can pick up one editorial and another within a month or two, and they seem like they're on opposite sides of this. Absolutely. And, and yeah. I see that as there's one that Carl Henry wrote, there's one that Nelson Bell wrote. <laughs> right. And you you can't put them together. They don't. I mean, but this speaks to the point. They knew by 1956 when they start publishing 
they knew that their goal was to create this intellectual, and they, they saw it more as an intellectual journal initially for pastors and theologians, but an intellectual world around the work of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was nothing if he wasn't adept at trying to keep the middle ground together. I mean, that's what he did throughout his ministry, why he was such a, a, a popular evangelist, because he refused to get involved too much in politics. And when he did, in the case of Nixon, you know, you could see it went too far, and he learned his lesson from that. But Bell would, would write very articulately, and, and before he wrote for Christianity Today, he wrote for the Southern Presbyterian Journal, very clear arguments why the, the mixing together of whites and blacks wasn't appropriate. Uh, he would cite what he saw in the South as a doctor, uh, what he saw in China, uh, you know, which is, was thinking of different races together. And so he was, he was sort of a gentleman segregationist or an intellectual segregationist, certainly used religion as part of it. But clearly, we, we should view him as someone who, did, who, who would have been opposed to uh, uh, integration. Henry didn't know what to do with it. And so there's a, for instance, in 57, there's a memo, and it's in those archives. There's a memo, and it's, it's classic. It's on that notepad that you'd see on people's desks, from the desk of, and this is from the desk of, Carl Henry. And it says, Nelson, you're pretty much our conscience on this race issue. And it's, it's stapled to a, uh, a news clipping about private schools in Virginia and how they're being challenged as sort of segregated academies. That decision by Henry, who again is not just a news editor, but he's the intellectual engine behind this new movement, the, the person articulating social ethics and the blueprint for how this will work. And on race, he turns to Bell and he says, because you're a Southerner, because you have more experience dealing with race issues, you handle this. And, and that decision, in my estimation, really leads to that, that fractured voice that you see uh, not only in Christianity today, but it, but it also has an impact on Graham. Because Bell answers a lot of Graham's correspondence. Bill, uh, he, he writes back to people. He writes back to Southern pastors who are concerned when they hear Graham speaking out against racial segregation. And Bell, in some instances, writes back and says, look, Billy doesn't support this stuff any more than you or I do. And, and, and so, again, that's private correspondence, but it's public now. And, and you know, Graham, is, Graham loved Nelson Bell. He, he said outside of his own father, it was the most, uh, he was Nelson Bell's most influential person in his life. So it's not to say, I, you know, I wouldn't make the case that, you know, Graham was a closet racist. That's not the point here. The point is that this is a time when America is really struggling to figure out what to do with, with these issues of integration. Uh, the bus boycott in Montgomery comes to a close and people maybe feel like that's it. It's over. In 1957, the, the year after it ends, Graham invites Martin Luther King to come to New York City, Madison Square Garden, to open his summer crusade there with a, with a, a prayer. Uh, and so there's outreach, there's cooperation. Graham's staff and King's staff even talked about the two of them doing crusades together. Can you imagine that? A Billy Graham, Martin Luther King joint crusade, <laughs> yeah, where something. Graham would preach the gospel and King would rally the, the 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 people to get out in the streets and fight for integration, and they'd have an altar call and then maybe they'd sign people up to come march the next day. So they never did it. And and part of this, you know, Graham uh, remembers this and he recollects that King said, "You need to stay in the churches and and, and preach your gospel. I'm going to go out in the streets and do what I do, and we're going to do this separately." But, but it is interesting to note that, that King's staff talked to Graham's staff about their whole methodology for how they would go in 
months ahead of a crusade meeting into a city, get volunteers and prepare. And they took a lot of, of cues from that. And they used a lot of that. Yeah. In, in terms of how they would organize the king going into different cities and planning a very different rally, but in planning these. Broadening a little bit to some of the other organizations in kind of the uh, the evangelical movement, I, I, I did see uh, some comments from the uh, National Association of Evangelicals uh, in the in the 60s when they're asked about the Civil Rights Act or uh, the Selma March or some of these things. Uh, and they're just saying, hey, look, we, do, we, we don't see that civil rights is the business of the church. Literally, the quote is, civil rights is not the business of the church, so the NAE has stayed out of this area. Another, another quote is from a, a Rusty Hawkins quote that I saw. You know, NAE, quote, has a policy of not becoming involved in political or sociological affairs that do not affect the function of the church or those involved in the propagation of the gospel. So, you know, this is the mid-60s. It's not that long before the NAE actually is quite involved in some of uh, political and, and sociological questions. So I think that the NAE and, and their their sort of refusal to get into politics, and I think this is part of the challenge of, of what evangelicalism looks like and what it means. Everybody knows the, the part of the story that, that suggests that there were religious uh, advocates in the civil rights movement from white churches, but they were all from white liberal churches or mainline churches. And um, David Chappelle has pointed out that really the, the key to the movement was prophetic religion, the, the, the religion that was propagated by Martin Luther King, by others uh, in the black church. And that was a religion that believed in the reality of sin. Yeah. The white liberal churches, the white liberal churches marched and they, they gave support. And that's not to be overlooked. But those elites, those, uh, those, those from more liberal faith, they didn't believe in the reality of sin. They did this as a good deed in society. And so to break the bondage of racial segregation, to, to defeat Jim Crow, it meant you had to recognize the depth of conviction that would point to it as real sin. And that's not possible if you don't believe that sin truly exists. Does that argument just not resonate among white evangelical leaders, or is it just that that the other things we've talked about already just made them uh, more more deaf to that? I mean, you do read, you, you know, when you read these, even even the Bell editorials that are clearly more on the Bell side, you know, there, there's, there's, uh, there is some talk about like there is a lot of racial injustice. There's this there is sin that we need to address in terms of uh, mistreatment of blacks. But does the does the stuff that that King and the civil rights movement is talking about, uh, in t- when they talk about like this is sin, does that just not resonate? Well, if you think about when King's jailed in Birmingham on Good Friday uh, and, and and writes the, the the classic letter from Birmingham jail. He's writing that letter from Birmingham jail, not to the general public, although he knows it'll get picked up and, and, and be published, but he's writing it as a response to the white moderate ministers of Birmingham, Alabama. And these are people that are respectable. They don't want trouble in their city. They don't want dissent. They don't want riots in the street or protests or even sit-ins. And, and so I think that's the, that's the challenge. If, if you really believe that something is sin, how do you respond to that? Do we do we believe it's a sin uh, on par with deceit, with theft? Do we believe that racism is a sin that's just sort of maybe like gossip and everybody sort of does it here and there, but we can't really ever get rid of it? So, so there's a there's a belief that that's sin, but but how deep do you believe it? For those black ministers in the movement, they had no question in their mind about what it what what it was, what kind of sin this was. 
they looked at their families, they looked at their neighborhoods, they looked at the people in their pews, and they saw the suffering that they had endured for that sin. You've looked at kind of the rise of the religious right in the 70s. My understanding is part of that is, you know, is still tied to the race question, right? I mean, there's a big catalyst when tax exemption is is pulled from Bob Jones University over over its racial policies. Uh, And a lot of organizations kind of rally to Bob Jones, uh, not necessarily because they agree with Bob Jones University's racial policies, but because they're they're uh, quite concerned about um, the government pulling tax exempt status for something that they they disagree with. How much of a catalyst was the Bob Jones University uh, case, and and it, is there any hand wringing uh, among evangel- white evangelical leaders to say? This this doesn't look very good for us to be supporting segregationist policies again. And just remind us for a second, the actual Bob Jones policy that led to that. Randall Balmer's really made this case the strongest in, in his book uh, on Jimmy Carter, um, Redeemer. But he also recounts a, a story of Paul Wyrick, who was one of the uh, initial founders of the Moral Majority. And, and he suggests that, um, that, that there was this idea of, of preserving... Bob Jones University's right to have segregation on their campus, and that you know while they were uh, in in the Supreme Court case where that was being challenged, that there was a, an organization that said you know we really need to come to their aid, and this became the moral majority or the religious right. And and I think I mean I think you have to recognize that there probably are some factions that would have supported that on on race issues for sure and and certainly you know, the Bob Jones University crowd had uh, a lot of supporters a couple pieces of context though i mean one is that we should note you know even bob jones himself parted ways with billy graham in 1957 over that new york crusade where mlk came and gave the the the, the prayer and it wasn't just because of king but it was because after the 57 crusade uh, people like Carl McIntyre and Bob Jones, who were more fundamentalists, thought that Graham had kind of sold out to uh, the the mainline churches, the more liberal churches, because he had invited them to participate in his crusades. So, so there's a rift there. I would argue that that starts to to really clarify what evangelicals and fundamentalists look like. And by, by the time you get to the the 70s in the Bob Jones case. I think what we have in in the late 70s, as the moral majority and religious right get organized, you have this coalition together. All politics is built on coalitions. But a lot of the people in that coalition are, are people I would rightly identify as fundamentalists still. And and so fundamentalism takes a different approach than it did, you know, from the 1930s through about the 1950s, where they were, were sort of withdrawing from society. The reality is in the Cold War period, any organized religion in America, you know, the, the classic Protestant, Catholic, or Jew were the majority face. And they were all very active because the alternative was, quote unquote, godless communism. And so to, to be any kind of religion was to take a stand for you know, patriotic Americanism. And, and so this, this blending together of politics and, and faith, uh, it's not as if it just sort of comes out of nowhere in the late 70s. It's churning for a while. It, it has a lot to do with uh, what's happening in Watergate. It definitely has a lot to do with race. But, but in that, that, that time period, I, I think a story that hasn't really been told as much, in 1977, after uh, Jimmy Carter defeats Gerald Ford for the presidency, 
you might think, well, Carter ran as a born-again Christian. 1976 was the year of the evangelical, and so obviously that's when the Republican Party strategy was, let's go recruit evangelical Christians. But that's not what they did. In 1977, the new chair of the GOP, Bill Brock, who'd been a senator, he said, our key for victory in 1980 to get the White House back is to reach out to black Americans. And so they hired consultants, they brought in specialists, they even had uh, Jesse Jackson as the keynote speaker at the mid, uh, midpoint convention in 1978, the GOP convention keynote speaker was Jesse Jackson. And this was a concerted effort by Republicans to reach out to black voters. Now, were they thinking they would all of a sudden change the tide that had, had been around since FDR and, and bring uh, black voters back to the Republican Party, where the party of Lincoln? Not necessarily, but they thought maybe they could attract enough that they could make a difference in key states. And this was the strategy. In the midst of that strategy, that four-year strategy is building from 77 up to the 1980 election. They recruit people like Ralph Abernathy, who was King's right-hand man, to endorse Reagan, and he does so a week before the election in 1980. But in the midst of that, out of nowhere, comes the religious right, comes the moral majority, comes these, these, um, these more conservative religious pastors organizing. And so even in that story, race and religion are intertwined. They're mixed together. They're they're going different directions, but they're overlapping for sure. I mean, Michael, is it basically precisely because of segregation that allowed people to feel insulated from this? I mean, when we when we look at Jim Crow history today, and as you were rightly noted, that Jim Crow extends across the U.S., we can see a legacy of lynchings, of terrorism in many ways that was promulgated by white citizens when black families would try to move in or take a public space. You know, there's just this long legacy of violence that that at least, you know, is taught in the history that we see today. But is this something that people did not know about or conveniently forgot and or was even just kind of seen as so much of the status quo that you end up kind of building a Christian theology that doesn't challenge that? Yeah, that's a good point. I, when you think about segregation, of course, King and Graham both often use the the phrase that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week, and it's been repeated by many other people. But, the, but they both believe that, and they both saw that as evidence of the problem. That's one part, part of segregation. Even today, when we think about segregated lives, I mean, de facto segregation, the, the reality is that, that most people don't live in integrated neighborhoods. Where our schools are, are more integrated than they were a generation or two ago, but there's still tension even with that. And, and of course, today, when we think of this, in the civil rights era, we think of this as African-Americans and, and their fight for, for equality. Today, we've got all, all kinds of other issues than, uh, that, that enter into this in terms of immigration, in terms of assimilation, in terms of of, uh, of, of you know, racial balance in schools, but also in cities. So, but you're onto something there. I think the reality is, and I, I have to believe this uh, as a as a Christian, as an evangelical, that when I think about living the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, when I think about uh, what it means to truly love my neighbor, my literal neighbor, the person that lives next door to me, if they're in trouble, if they're dealing with suffering. As a Christian, I respond. I have to respond. I have to look them in the eye and not be indifferent. And so who is that person that lives next door or down the block or across the street or around the corner? And if they don't have these, these struggles, I probably am not as aware of them. It's easier, especially in a media age, to just look at this and say, well, that's a, that's, that's a challenge that some people have to face. 
And in the, the early era, uh, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, it was too easy for people to, to just say, well, that's a Southern problem. Those people in the South really have to figure out their problem. It's interesting. There's uh, you know, shortly after um, King's assassination, uh, I was looking at the uh, letters to the editor uh, published in CT, and there's one issue where there's uh, two letters from New York, one one from uh, White Pastor, you know, who's de- kind of decrying the deafening silence of evangelical leaders to to King's death and saying, uh, you know, this is you know literally you know an, an assassination and and. Uh, uh, the folks who supposedly are against the civil rights movement over issues of the rule of law are saying nothing about this uh, illegal uh, murder. And then the, that's followed by um, a letter from uh, a black Christian, uh, also from New York, Joseph Fields. And he he is talking about how uh, you know even in the even in the north, and he's you know he's someone who is uh, definitely in the kind of evangelical movement in in uh, based in New York. There, um, he says, uh, you know, the most evangelicals that I know do not hate Negroes. He says, but they simply do not love them. And he talks about how you know the second great commandment, "Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself." Uh, if it means anything, it means that. Uh, Christians should not be dealing uh, with uh, other Christians with with racial and uh, favoritism. You know, I think that that line is fairly damning about um, you know even even trying to take on uh, hey even if you're a, a northern Christian who thinks you know you've got it over uh, kind of racist southerners, he's like no. But if you're not loving, you're not following <laughs> Jesus's commandments on this one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know when you talk about the immediate aftermath of King's assassination. Again, it's easy for us to to sort of think of this as a family discussion within evangelicalism and to look at what evangelicals did, and that's important. Uh, you know, one takeaway from this is is to say how distinct were white evangelicals from the white middle class in America as a whole. And and I think that that's not to give any kind of cover or excuse to evangelicals because we would expect that there would be a distinctiveness to that. But what we find is that more often than not you can explain it by saying, okay, well, these were people that were middle-class people, and they were just kind of buying into what was happening in their class structure, what was happening in their their neighborhoods. And, and, and the churches should have been distinct from that, and that's what we have to think about today. But, but famously, you know, even in, in, in terms of on-the-record statements after the assassination of King, you know, there, were, there were some, especially Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, who said, well, this is what he asked for. This is what was coming to him. And it's, it's, it's just unfathomable to think that someone would say something like that today. And yet that demonstrates that even by 68, there was that type of a divide in the country. And remember, too, what happened that week. I mean, just a few days before King was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson went on national television to give this groundbreaking speech. No one knew what his topic would be. And that's when he said, I shall not seek, nor will I accept the nomination of my party for president. And it shook the electoral process. Robert Kennedy, a couple of days later, enters in, decides to, to jump in and, and, and be part of the Democratic primary. After King's assassinated, Morgan, you'd be interested to know, they delayed the start of the baseball season by a few days. Uh, there's this picture of Hubert Humphrey throwing out the first pitch uh, for the baseball season in Washington, for Washington senators, because Johnson wouldn't go, he was he was sort of reclusive at that point, given everything that had happened, and and this is four or five days later after they delayed the start of the season. But that picture tells a lot of story. What's happened in the the nation in the previous week? 
lot to mull over here. There's even another podcast we can record about how Jackie Robinson and MLK didn't see race the same way as well. Ah, uh, yes, absolutely. Which I would love to do. Very briefly, just before we wrap, I'm just wondering if you could just touch on the school issue. I just feel like we we went the whole podcast without mentioning Brown versus Board of Education and the Christian private school system. Still to this day, there's a lot of controversy over private education or charter schools. Um, some have accused those schools of being havens for segregation, um, you know, especially if, if there's high tuition, that sort of thing. And that, that was the accusation initially, even in the 1950s. You know, part of the challenge of the Brown decision was that the courts at first ruled that this would happen. They followed up with the second Brown decision. And, and really, the courts do what they do. They say this is how the law should be interpreted. But we leave it to the executive branch uh, to, to carry it out. And, you know, under Eisenhower, who, who did pass the civil rights bill uh, in the late 50s, um, there wasn't a whole lot of action. And, and in response, in 56, again, the same year that the bus boycott in Montgomery is going on, you know, the, the Southern Manifesto is, is written to, to build massive resistance into an organized strategy. So I think we have to look back and say there, are, there were places where some of those private schools may have been formed as segregation academies, so to speak. But the reality is, it's not like after the 54 decision, the next year, all the schools in America are integrated. In fact, hardly any were. You know, three years later, you have the Little Rock Central crisis because that was an attempt to try to integrate Little Rock Central. And it didn't work. And it they closed the schools for a year. I mean, imagine the whole city just says, rather than integrate, we're going to close the schools. Everybody take a year off. And, and a year later, they, they went at it again. So, um, you know, most scholars who've looked at this, have, if you look at busing, if you look at the crisis over busing in the 1970s, that's when some of those issues really start to take root. And I think that would be a time when you could look at it and say, okay, are there communities where private academies are, are uh, being founded as a, as a way to avoid integrated schools? Um, there's probably some evidence for that. But I, again, I think it's, it's a dismissive argument that just suggests, and this happens a lot in scholarship, uh, suggests that religion's not a true motivator. And, and I have to believe that there are many families, even to this day, for whom uh, a private Christian education or, or even homeschooling is their issue of conscience. That's the, you know, you think about it, the way you raise your children, the way your children go to school is an is a important part, maybe the most important part of what you're doing as you, you sort of bring them up. And so I think there's, there's a need to just respect that. But, but, you know, clearly there are some who would say, that this this is nothing more than a racial strategy. I, I see it the same way, you know, the question you had about the founding of the religious right, that it was all about race or the Bob Jones decision. You know, there are good scholars who make that case, but but I think that diminishes religion. I think people of conscience and religious faith do these things for, for good reason. And that may mean that they end up with de facto segregation in their schools, and they have to figure out how to confront that because it is real sin. And, and it is it is a problem in our country to this day. Thank you so much, Michael, for giving us so much to think about. That was a really powerful podcast, in my opinion. Anyone who has feedback on the podcast can give that to us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts, and we have a brand new email address for people who aren't on Twitter or want to have more thoughtful responses. You can send your thoughts on the podcast to podcasts at ChristianityToday.com. 
All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy. Um, Michael, do you want to go ahead? Yes. Yes. Something fun. It's almost track season. Five of my six kids are running track this year. Running for our family has become a a new outlet. Um, You know, the famous quote from Eric Little, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Um, I've often paraphrased that when I run, I feel God's pity uh, (laughs) because because there's no greater uh, grace uh, picture maybe than uh, a fat man jogging. But um, this is this is reality. Track season's upon us and the kids are ready to run. So I'm excited for that. That's a precious moment for our family. Nice. Are you on Twitter or on social media? I am. You can find me on Twitter at Michael D. Hammond. Um, Also, I'll mention Religion in American History. Ted mentioned at the top of the podcast, it's a collaborative site of religious history scholars from around the country, and uh, we publish uh, multiple times per week. So please check that out, Religion in American History. Ted. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, I went to this conference called the Knoll Conference, and it was really invigorating. And I, you know, I'm still kind of a little bit on a high from that. So I, I've been reading uh, this book uh, that actually was a festschrift for George Marsden when George Marsden uh, retired. He's, uh, you know, with Noel and and Nathan Hatch and and, and some others, uh, kind of one of the uh, the key uh, kind of historians of of American evangelicalism. Uh, anyway, literally, the book is titled "American Evangelicalism: George Marsden and the State of American Religious History." Uh, it's not cheap. It's uh, from University of North, uh, pardon me, University of uh, Notre Dame Press. But man, I'm amazed at how you know Festschrift books can be. They can be really bad. They just you know they uh, a lot of people at times people do not do not do their best work. What if I asked what a Festschrift was? Oh, it's like a collection uh, in in honor of you know a scholar. Uh, this is largely done by uh, Marsden's uh, you know, former grad students, and it's good. There's some chapters in there that are—there's uh, one on the African-American Great Awakening. I'm really going to try to figure out some way to uh, bring it into CT in some way in, in uh, abbreviated form uh, by Jay Case. Super interesting stuff in there. So, yeah, that's been one of my highlights this week. If people wanted to read it, <laughs> go to a college library. Yeah, literally get it through interlibrary loan because I think it's you know it's one of these things that's meant to be bought by libraries. So it's like fifty dollars for the hardcover, and there's no Kindle edition that's affordable, and you know so that's unfortunate. But uh, I will say that the uh, Mark Nolfes Shrift, um Turning Points in American Evangelical History is also is also very good. So in my denigration of fest shrifts, uh, I would not include either the Marsden or the Nolfes. Cool. Are you online? I am. I'm at uh, at Ted Olson. Uh, that's Olson with an E, T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N. And you'll be on this podcast. The past, I'll be on the podcast for a while. All right. So my precious moment is not baseball. Baseball just brings pain, guys. Just FYI. But it is actually going to Lake Superior a couple days ago, which I have seen Lake Superior now twice. I think I went to the UP, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan last year, and I went to Lake Superior again on the Minnesota side. I drove up to Duluth from Minneapolis with some friends over the weekend, and we had a great time just seeing all the amazing icicles and ways that the snow and ice have melted or not melted to form all the cool shapes in winter. I just really love hiking when you can look outside and see this giant lake as you go among the trees and the snow. It was really beautiful. I recommend that to anyone who wants to do good winter hiking in April. <laughs> all right. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. 
That is it for us this week. Thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts as well. And thank you to everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today. Again, you can become a subscriber as well by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.